Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen and Hamas in Gaza are all rivals to Israel. And they're all part of one umbrella group. It's known as the Axis of Resistance and it's led by Iran. When people warn that Israel's assault on Gaza could spread into a regional war, they usually mean that Israel and its Western backers could come into full-blown conflict with the Axis of Resistance. Others have hoped that while the West sits back and lets Israel commit what looks like genocide, the Axis will be able to rise to Palestine's defence. For example, that's how many anti-imperialists are interpreting Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. But beyond the headlines, what is the real nature of the Axis of Resistance? And what's the basis of the enmity between Israel and the Axis's most powerful member, Iran? And with that knowledge in hand, we can ask what are the chances that Israel's assault on Gaza could become a regional war? To get a handle on the axis of resistance, I spoke to Trita Parsi. Trita is the author of a really brilliant book on the relationship between Israel and Iran. It's called Treacherous Alliance, the Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran and the United States. Um, I read it over Christmas. I really recommend you check it out. Trita is also the Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statescraft in Washington, D.C. As usual, the first half of this conversation will be available on the free Crash Course feed. To listen to the full interview, you can sign up as a patron for £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will get you access to all of this conversation and all previous full episodes of Crash Course. Just a note on sound quality in this episode. For the first 20 minutes, um, the mic Trita is using is far from perfect, but um, the, the quality gets a lot better after 20 minutes. Um, so do make sure um, you, you keep listening and, and you get through the slightly lower audio quality for the first 20 minutes to get to the rest. Trita Parsi, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. I know you're incredibly busy at the moment. My pleasure to be here. Um, so I wanted to spend the first half of this conversation sort of giving context to the axis of resistance. What is it? What are their interests which sort of align the various members of it? And then in the second half, we're going to talk about very recent developments and the possibility for regional war. And I suppose my first question is, is the axis of resistance uh, a label that it gives to itself um, and is this sort of a, a formal organization which is recognized by its members or is this more of a sort of term of abuse? Oh, these are the axes of, of resistance, a bit like the axes of evil. Um, so could you talk about that to begin? So I, I don't know if they have chosen the English translation, uh, but the way they are referring to themselves is an axis of resistance. I think resistance is the key word here, whether axis is perfectly translated or not, I'm not so sure of. Because, uh, you know, most Western Governments would probably prefer to refer to them as a, a coalition of terrorist organizations or uh, something of that sort. So, you know, the, the resistance term in it itself is, is quite charged here, but that is how they're describing themselves. And, and, and the broader um, meaning of it is resistance to Western hegemony uh, in the Middle East as a whole. And I think one of the mistakes that is done in the manner in which mainstream media tends to describe these organizations is as if they are proxies of Iran. Without a doubt, they have close relations, varying close relations with Iran. 
without a doubt, they're funded to some parts and armed and trained by Iran. But the extent to which they are just um, pieces on a chess board that the Iranians can do whatever they want with, and as a result, they're nothing but proxies, I think it's mistaken. Moreover, it really underestimates the very strong ideological component that binds them together, which is exactly an end to the Western hegemony and and to the uh, local leaders that are favored by Western powers in the Middle East. That, more than anything else, is bound them together in a way um, that I think uh, stands out in terms of longevity of Middle Eastern alliances. And I know you've said that this, these are not merely proxies of, of Iran, but I want to sort of take us through step by step the various parts of the axis of resistance. And it does make sense to start with Iran, because whether or not they're all proxies of Iran, Iran is clearly the most sort of important, significant, powerful um, member um, of, these, of this axis. And I want to sort of go back to basics, which is why does Iran oppose Israel? Why are Israel and, and Iran enemies because i think it's often talked about sort of in the media if it's talked about at all it's often you know just seen as oh, oh of course israel and iran are enemies that's that, that's just the nature of, of the middle east or you know you might also hear people sort of saying oh it's it's just because this is a, a genocide or anti-semitic regime full of sort of mad islamists who who just you know want to destroy israel for some sort of pathological reason um i know from from your book you think it's more complicated than that so i was wondering if you could sort of give our give uh, give the audience sort of a a bit of a background as to relations sure. between israel and iran and why yeah. iran and israel find themselves as enemies i think now. one thing listeners in general should be careful about is when analysis is put forward by particularly by decision makers that are of that simplistic nature. Well, they hate us simply because they they attack us because they hate our way of life, or they attack us because they're just hateful and anti-Semitic or ideological, etc. Because those types of reasonings completely absolve your own side of any responsibility in what oftentimes are very complex relationship and histories in which no one is a saint, no one is a complete devil either. In the case of Iran, the the conventional understanding of it is that this is entirely driven by the ideological uh, inclinations of the Islamic regime in Iran that is very anti-Israel. And without a doubt, there is an element of truth in the fact, obvious fact that there is uh, ideological opposition in Iran, but in this specific re regime towards Israel. That does not, however, in any way, shape or form explain the full complexity as well as the trajectory and direction and changes that have taken place in that relationship. If you take a look at the history between Israel and Iran, Iran and Israel were allies prior to the Islamic revolution, open allies, even though it was treated as an open secret. But this all came about in the 19, early 1950s because of a sense of common um, uh, security imperatives that the two sides had. Both of them uh, sense the threat from the Soviet Union, and both of them sense the threat from strong Arab nationalist countries in the region, Saddam under, uh, Iraq under Saddam, uh, Egypt under Nasser. And these factors drove these two countries closer together. 
Then the perception, of course, is that everything changed in the 1980s because this regime, this Islamic regime, that is so anti-Israel. In reality, however, it didn't. Behind the scenes, the relationship continued uh, because the geostrategic factors were still there. The Soviet Union was still a threat. Uh, Iraq had now invaded Iran, so the Iranians were in even greater need of uh, alliances against uh, some of these Arab states, particularly from the fact that almost all Arab states supported Iraq. And, and on top of that, Iran had now managed to make the United States an enemy of itself because of the hostage crisis. And Iran's entire military was uh, based on American weaponry. When the U.S. imposed uh, an arms embargo on the Iranians, it put the Iranian military at a standstill. The Iranians were desperate for spare parts. Well, guess what? There were two countries in the world that had access to American spare parts and were willing to sell them to Iran. One was North Vietnam, who had a lot of American spare parts for a very different reason. And the other one was Israel, who happily violated U.S. sanctions because they wanted to retain that relationship with Iran, despite the Islamic Republic, because it needed that because of its own geopolitical calculations. Yeah, and so this is something that really surprised me from, from reading your book. So my basic understanding of the Iran Israel relationship was that under the Shah, Iran was an ally of Israel. Obviously, the Shah was was pro-Western, Western-backed, American-backed. And then, as you say, Israel and Iran had similar geostrategic interests at that time. So neither wanted strong Arab states. Our audience will be aware of the, the Israeli-Arab conflict. And then the Iranians had their own um, problems with the Arab states because of sort of Persian-Arab rivalry. And then both were suspicious of Soviet influence. So Iran borders the Soviet Union. They didn't want to become a puppet state. The Soviets sort of had eyes on their resources to some degrees. Now, I had assumed that that had all changed in, in 1979. So at that point, the Ayatollah Khomeini comes to power. You have an Islamic revolution. The rhetoric suddenly gets very, very hostile to, to Israel. And Iran also at this point is no longer an ally of the West. That's especially um, after the American diplomats were taken hostage in Tehran. Um, but as you say, it, it's not as simple as that. Even after the revolution, even after the Islamic revolution, both Iran and Israel still both see Iraq, not each other, as their biggest threat. Obviously, the Soviet Union still in existence as well. And so they were therefore still willing to collaborate with one another. And that continues throughout the 1980s. Uh, and it's, of course, culminated in the uh, Iran-Contra scandal in which the Israelis managed to convince the U.S. to sell weapons to Iran despite of the U.S.'s own arms embargo on Iran. This was all an effort by the Israelis to get the U.S. and Iran back on track with each other again because it served Israeli interests. The real shift that happens in which you see this open enmity between the Iranians and the Israelis uh, that is not just rhetorical but also practical uh, is after 1991. And what happened there is that the geopolitics of the world just completely changed. On a global scale, you had the end of the Soviet Union. We went from bipolarity to unipolarity. The Soviet threat that the Iranians and the Russia, uh, uh, Israelis threat, uh, were worried about was gone. Secondly, Saddam Hussein invaded Iraq and the US led a UA coalition that completely defeated Saddam. That was the last standing Arab army that could pose a threat both to Iran and to Israel. So suddenly you had a completely different geopolitical environment, one in which there were no longer common threats 
that pushed Iran and Israel closer together to have some sort of an alliance. Instead, what emerged was a geopolitical environment in which Iran and Israel emerged as uh, the two most powerful states in the region, and they started to view each other as threats. There was no longer an Iraq that could be a buffer against Iran and Israel. In the late 1991, you started seeing articles in the Israeli press that stated that in this new situation, it's no longer the, in the, uh, the closer vicinity of Israel that is the threat, but rather the Persian periphery. That's the new threat. And particularly with Israel going for the Oslo Agreement and trying to make peace with its immediate Arab neighborhood, it actually needed an Iranian threat in order to push its own population in accepting uh, peace with the Palestinians and with Yasser Arafat, who otherwise for a generation, they had been taught to view solely as a terrorist. Uh, one Israeli advisor to Yitzhak Rabin made it very clear to me in one of my interviews with him, if I remember it correctly, he said that we, Israel needed a threat on the horizon in order to be able to convince the Israeli public to go along with a peace deal with the Palestinians. So it's in the 1990s that geopolitics change. Incidentally, very fascinating. It's happening. The, the culmination, the really increase in Israeli-Iranian tensions happened at a time when Iran's ideological zeal is cooling in the 1990s. Ayatollah Khomeini was dead. The Iranians came out of the Iraq-Iran war really weakened. The revolution was a failure. They needed to patch things up. They needed to be more um, uh, pragmatic. And they had completely given up on the idea of spreading their revolution through regime change. So at a point of uh, a much, much lower ideological zeal, that's when the tensions between Iran and Israel maximizes. And you can't explain that if this is all about ideology. You can't explain it if you take into account the geopolitical factors that, in my view, have been the key driving force of their relationship. And so this is what's completely core to your argument, right? So Israel and Iran, they did go from being allies to enemies. That shift did take place, but it wasn't because of an ideological change in Tehran in, in 1979, but rather a later change in geopolitics, um, which sort of changed the geostrategic interests of both Israel and, and Iran. And sort of to go back to what we we're talking about until the 1990s, Israel and Iran had common enemies in the form of strong Arab states and the Soviet Union. Um, that meant that regardless of shifts in public rhetoric, so you've got really hostile rhetoric, especially coming from Iran towards Israel, but they were still both willing to collaborate. But then that all changes after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and in particular, um, the defeat of, of Iraq in the first Gulf War. Um, so that's, of course, after Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, the Americans sort of assemble a uh, an international coalition to to defeat um, Saddam Hussein, Iraq massively weakened. No longer um, do do Israel and Iran have this common enemy in the form of the Soviets, in the form of a, a powerful Iraq, and so that means they end up fighting each other. Yeah, and and it's not entirely automatic. Not in the sense that oh, there's no other threats now; they have to fight each other. But it's also because. Well, it's more because of the fact that there was an effort to try to redefine what is the new order in the region right now. And as you recall, after the Persian Gulf War, as part of the promise that the Arab states needed in order to join the American coalition against Iraq, I mean, they were signing up to fight another Arab state, was to say, well, if we're going to address 
Iraq's occupation of Kuwait, then afterwards, you're going to have to address Israel's occupation of Palestine. And the Bush senior administration signed off on that. And that's why afterwards you had the Madrid conference. Uh, and at the Madrid conference, the U.S. was actually coordinating with the Arabs to kind of put pressure on these Israelis uh, to go along with a peace agreement. This started to really look dangerous to the Israelis. Now suddenly the United States was treating Israel as uh, baggage and as uh, a, um, a negative strategically in the region. Um, much of his diplomacy was shuttling between uh, various Arab um, capitals. It was a major rapprochement between the U.S. and Syria. And on top of that, there was an effort to potentially improve relations between Iran and the U.S., which incidentally the Israelis had been pushing for just years earlier. But now the fear was, in that scenario, Israel is going to be isolated. It's going to be seen as uh, of a little strategic value to the United States, particularly if the U.S. patches things up with Iran, a major geopolitical power. It has oil. It, it, it can control the uh, um, uh, Strait of Hormuz, where 40% of the uh, world's energy is coming through. So all of this created a scenario in which the Israelis were trying very hard to figure out how will they fit in to America's strategic outlook going forward? Uh, and part of it was to say, well, if the United States wants Israel to patch things up with the Palestinians, well, in order for the Israelis to take that risk for peace, the United States needs to focus on the new threat, which now suddenly was Shia Islamic fundamentalism. This is the point, 12 years after the revolution, in which the Israelis start to talk about Shia fundamentalism as the new big threat. So the U.S. needs to isolate and sanction uh, Iran. Moreover, this is also the moment in which the Israelis stop talking about Israel as a strategic asset to the United States, in the sense that, that that is the bedrock of the relationship. This is the moment you start seeing the Israelis talking about that the foundation for Israel and America's partnership and alliance is common values. This is the uh, uh, time when that term and that concept starts emerging. Prior to that, the Israelis very comfortably could say that as in, in the context of the Cold War, Israel was a key U.S. ally against the Soviet Union. Full stop. You did not need to have any other justification for the relationship. Post-Cold War, completely different situation. And now uh, it shifted towards seeing common values. And this is what we hear more and more of today as well. And I suppose you could have a sort of similar analysis on, on both sides of the conflict, right? So you've got Israel and America who maybe have these geostrategic interests to isolate Iran, or at least Israel does. I mean, it's, it's more ambiguous, isn't it, with the United States, but Israel does. Um, and then Iran, clearly one of their priorities is to defend themselves, to defend the, the regime. And they have an axis of resistance, which sort of ideologically on the surface is trying to defend Muslims in the Middle East against sort of Western encroachment, but also has its own geostrategic and, I mean, self-interested, you could say, logic for the Iranians, because they have these militia groups around the Middle East. And that means that they can basically use this as a deterrent. So if anyone threatens to invade Iran, they can say, well, if you, if you come for us, we've got Hezbollah uh, militants that could really create problems for you um, on the Israeli border, or we've got Shia militias in Iraq who could create problems for, for American um, military 
um, officials in in Iraq. So I suppose, could you talk about sort of how the axis of resistance sort of comes into this, um, both ideologically and, and geostrategically from the Iranian yeah, and, side? And, and, and the Iranians have been as self-interested as the Israelis. I mean, um, one thing that can perhaps be pointed out there is that they uh, sought to present themselves as the champions of the Palestinian cause. And they needed that because they wanted to be the leaders of the Islamic world. And to be the leader of the Islamic world, you needed to have leadership of the Palestinian issue as well, because it was the most important cause within the Islamic world. And this was a problem for the Iranians because the Palestinian cause was defined as an Arab nationalist cause. Iran as a non-Arab state had very little ability to claim leadership of it. So the Iranians worked very hard to transform the Palestinian cause into an Islamic because once it was defined as an Islamic cause, it was providing the Iranians with an opening to play a much bigger role in it. Um, and this was significant tension between Arafat and Khomeini on that specific point. Arafat was not a particularly religious person and certainly did not want to go along with that type of a reframing of the issue. Um, but then when the, when the Iranians, because of their geostrategic needs, needed to deal with Israel, needed weapons from Israel, etc., uh, they essentially adopted a policy of having their cake and eat it too. They used very, very venomous rhetoric against Israel to give the impression that they're really on the forefront against Israel on the side of the Palestinians, uh, but in practical terms, did very little to actually support the Palestinians. That changes, however, in the early 1990s, again, because of these geopolitical shifts. What happens then is that the Iranians first really want to patch things up with the United States. And in the beginning, there was also an opening from the U.S. side uh, going in that direction. But once uh, the Clinton administration signs off on the Israeli plan, which is peace process, Oslo, which is then combined with containing Iran, it was uh, uh, two sides of the same coin. That's when the Iranians then shift towards playing the spoiler. Their calculation was that the peace process was the weakest link in the Israeli-American strategy of putting Iran in prolonged isolation and never allowing it to break out of that continuum. So that's the point in which the Iranians start to try to patch things up with Hamas, who had very bad relations with Iran, um, and still did so for another decade or so. Sheikh Yassin hated the Shiites, uh, came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, was not a friend of Iran, but they had a common interest because they were both rejections of the Oslo Accord and the two-state solution. And you're starting to see the Iranians providing some degree of support and a convergence of their interests there and building up many of these different organizations. Of course, the most successful one started almost eight years earlier. That's with Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is still the main uh, ally that Iran has. But Hezbollah and Hamas are two completely different uh, uh, ballgames here because Hezbollah is a Shia organization ideologically, religiously, very close to Iran. Uh, for many uh, of the folks in Hezbollah, Ayatollah Khamenei is their source of emulation, Maja Itakli, which is with it, um, uh, Shia Islamists, you pick an, an Ayatollah that is your guide, uh, uh, your guru, so to say. So there's deeper family, religious, other times. Hamas is a, much more of a, a marriage of convenience, a marriage that has gone through numerous different bumps. Uh, just in the previous decade, Iran and Hamas were on completely different sides of one of the bloodiest conflicts in the region, which was the civil war in Syria. That didn't get patched up until, I think, 2018. 
Um, uh, so there's variations within this accent of resistance in terms of how close they are to Iran, how bought in they are to uh, some of the ideas, etc. But much of it comes from the very beginning of the 1990s, in which, uh, on the one hand, the Iranians are faced with prolonged isolation. On the other hand, those who are opposing the idea of giving up the dream of a, a unified Palestine and who oppose the idea of a two-state solution find a common cause. So you brought in Hezbollah and and Hamas, sort of, I suppose, the, the, the two um, militias that sort of, well, I mean, is it, can we call Hamas a militia? I'm not sure. I'll leave that as an open question. Hezbollah also obviously more than a militia. Um, Hezbollah is a Shia militia. So you can sort of see there's this obvious connection um, between the Iranians and Hezbollah. I mean, I, I, as far as I understand it, the Iranians were, were pretty much responsible for the creation of Hezbollah. Hamas, um, a different kettle of fish. They're a Sunni organization. They grew out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which, you know, has has no relation to to Iran whatsoever. So is there a sense in which Hamas is, is sort of the odd one out in the axis of, of resistance? And sort of what significance does, does that have? The axis of resistance, nearly all Shia, apart from Hamas, this Sunni organization. I think, again, uh, two of the core members obviously are Shia. And, and their ability to sustain that alliance um, is at least partially uh, related to their ideological uh, cohesion. Um, and it's again, it's interesting, mindful of the fact when you take a look at so many alliances that have been created in the Middle East, this is one of the most long-lasting ones between Iran and Hezbollah. But the Houthis are not Shia. You know, they're belonging to a different sect. Um, they're not necessarily accepted by the um, um, uh, the Sunni majorities, but it's also interesting, a senior Iranian official told me, I think it was 2010 or 2011, that he had no idea that the Houthis actually belonged to a different sect. So the idea that the Iranians would view them as Shia um, is not the case, and, and it wasn't the case before either. Um, Hamas, of course, it's not just that they're not Shia, but it's also the coming out of the Brotherhood who has had a very negative history with uh, Shia movements is perhaps more important. But I think, again, it points to the other thing. The real thing that is binding them together is this rejection of Western hegemony. It's not necessarily religious ideology as much as it is at least a dimension of political ideology that is bringing them together. So, again, to look at solely from as this being some sort of a manifestation of um, sectarianism in the region, I think would be incorrect and would miss a big part of the picture. And that big part of the picture is that the West has been trying to dominate the Middle East for quite some time. Um, before we move on to sort of very recent events and sort of whether or not we're about to see a regional war, let's just go to the Houthis because the Houthis, um, I always find it very interesting. The way we talked about sort of the, the Yemeni civil war in this country was always sort of the Yemenis as these sort of victims getting completely pulverized by the Saudis who were using this overwhelming force um, to, to completely destroy Yemen and the Houthis were, you know, it, only time um, would would tell before they completely you know, collapsed. And it, it seems that actually the Houthis won the civil war against the Saudi Arabia, against the Saudi Arabians, one of the sort of best armed militaries in, in the world, really. How did that happen? Well, I, I think it was a huge mistake of the Saudis to start that war in the first place. And they justified it earlier on by arguing that the Houthis back then were some sort of a, um, 
extension of Iran, a tool of the Iranians that the Iranians were using to uh, attack and create problems for the Saudis. That ended up becoming much more of a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that the war created a need for the Houthis to develop relations with Iran, uh, which the Iranians happily took advantage of, of course. Um, and, but it backfired profoundly on the Saudis. I think it's quite interesting to see how eager MBS is these days to just get himself out of that war uh, and, and pacify the southern border and focus on his 2030 uh, objective. Um, and, and again, you know, the United States was providing massive weaponry to the Saudis uh, as they were uh, pummeling Yemen and the Houthis at the time. And I think, again, it shows this is not whether the Houthis are right or wrong. It's not whether they're good or bad, but they are indigenous and they had a degree of support within society there. And you cannot simply bomb that away. Again and again, that seems to be the most obvious reality that we have the hardest time wrapping our heads around in the West. That was the first half of my conversation with Trita Parsi. In the second half of the interview, we discussed the risks of the Gaza war becoming a regional one and addressed the significance of recent events in the Middle East, including the assassination of a Hamas leader by Israel in Beirut, the Houthis holding up shipping in the Red Sea, and the terrorist bombing in Iran, which has killed over 100 people. To listen to the full show and all previous full episodes of Crash Course, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod.